I'd like to read the text. It's from the 22nd chapter of Genesis, verses 1 through 14. From Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said today, to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. None of us is a stranger to taking an exam. You've known the exaltation of making an A. Well, some of you have. And you know that heavy, sinking feeling, getting an F. I'm told that that now many teachers are going to what is called a pass or fail exam, simply meaning that there there are no letter grades. There's just one test given at the end of the semester, and you pass or fail on the basis of how you do in that exam. You either make it or you don't. Well, life has all kinds of tests. Barbara Brokoff tells about a test one day that the Civil Defense Unit in DeKalb, Georgia had. They were going to have this mock disaster drill in one of the grade schools to see how this crack Civil Defense Unit operated. 
The first slip-up came when the guy who was supposed to call the ambulance failed to call the ambulance, and so they waited in the disaster. No one came. Finally, it dawned on him what he did wrong, and in his haste to call the ambulance, he called the ambulance, called the emergency service in the next county, and no one came. And finally, it dawned on them what had happened, and so they called the right ambulance crew, and they came roaring into the schoolyard. And the team fell out of the ambulance and went rushing in to the fourth grade room where they found this empty cot lying by a teacher's desk. And on the cot was a note scribbled by the hand of a fourth grader, resumably injured in the mock disaster. And the note read, I done bled to death and went home. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, DeKalb County, Georgia Defense Unit failed their exam. What if God gave you a test this morning? I mean one like that's in our text. A test of love and obedience and faith. One like He gave to Abraham. came in the, in the last years of his life, in his old age. For God had given this man a son when he was a hundred years old and He named him Isaac because the, the name means laughter. And Isaac became the idol of his affection. Isaac brought laughter to this old man's heart that had not had laughter. And then one day God came to Abraham and said, I want you to take your only son that you love and offer him on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. Hold it. Does God do that? Would God command a man to kill his son? Is that a accordant with the divine nature? It's a good question and a thorny one, a problem. And there are two factors to consider in the answering of it. First is that it was the deliverance of Isaac that was an integral part of the divine nature or purpose of God. So that the big question is not, is it accordant with the divine nature to ask that a man sacrifice his son. But the big question is, is it accordant with the divine nature to demand readiness, to offer to God the dearest thing in our life? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. The second factor that is in this to consider is that in Abraham's day, a father's absolute authority over his son was unquestioned. So even though the command must have lacerated Abraham's heart, it didn't shock his conscience as it would if it were asked of us today. And so God said, I want you to take your son to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And what Abraham did in response becomes the model for each of us today. As a matter of fact, it kind of becomes a grating key to every test that comes in life. Now, if you have a pencil, I want you to jot some down because I want to give you five or six of them, principles or truths that kind of emerge from this text. The first is this, that what God commands, we should take seriously. Verse, one, verse 2 says that God spoke to Abraham. Verse 3 begins, so Abraham, so underline it because it shines like the sun on these verses. God said to Abraham, 
so he got up and did it. God spoke, so he did it. And the condition of Abraham's response was not on the acceptability of the command, but upon its derivation. Abraham got up and did what God told him to, not because what he asked him to do was acceptable, but because God asked him to do it. And so he rose, arose early in the morning. There's no hesitation, there's no argument there. There's no pleading for some time to elapse. So he arose early. It is obedience without any kind of reservation. Is it hard to get your kids up in the morning? If you've got any, it probably is. You know, to get them up and go to school. Has this ever happened to you? You know, hey, it's time to get up and go to school. And there's this kind of pleading. Can I have just five more minutes? And they just kind of pull the covers over their head, you know, and just kind of plead for five more minutes. That happens in every household, I'm sure. It's not that they're not model students. You know, getting up to go to school isn't the most attractive thing to do in the day. But um, it's, not hard, not, it's not any trouble getting them up on Christmas morning. You try to sleep in on that morning, see how that works. Or if you're headed out to some trip, some vacation trip, it's not hard to get them up then because the acceptability of that is much more than you know, getting up and going to school. Maybe it happened like this. Can't you just see Abraham's neighbor sitting on his back porch patio, drinking a cup of coffee, reading the... Beersheba Beacon or whatever. And he sees old Abraham get up early and, and start out the door with his son Isaac. And, and the neighbor says, I, I says, Abraham, I couldn't sleep very well last night and wasn't feeling well. And I saw your light on early this morning. Getting out kind of early, aren't you? Abraham says, yeah, I can't, just couldn't sleep. I, had to, I was anxious to get started on our trip. Oh, you're headed on a trip, are you? Where are you going? I'm going up to Mount Moriah and offer my son as a sacrifice. And I see the neighbor going inside getting his wife up. Abigail, he says, you know those neighbors of ours, we always thought they were a little queer. You know when Sarah was telling you that one day Abraham came in to her and said, pack up your bags, we're leaving. And she said, where are we going? He said, I don't know. We thought that's kind of strange. And not every day is it that a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman has a baby. Weird folks. But let me tell you the kicker. Abraham tells me this morning that he couldn't wait to get up and start on his trip. He's going to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Strangest man I've ever met. Maybe it didn't happen like that. Not sure. But I am sure of this. In the heart of Abraham was this pulsating desire, this urgent need to do what God wanted him to do. It was the consuming passion of his life to do the will of God, and he did it without reservation. It's what Jesus meant when, he came, when his disciples came back from the village in Sychar and said, Lord, we have something for you to eat. And he said, my meat, my essential food is to do the will of my Father. How do you pass that test? I mean, how do you measure up to that kind of test? Don't you imagine that God feels that we're a little inconsistent when we're always asking Him to reveal His unknown will to us when we have resistance and resentment to His known will? Second principle. 
Obedience always runs into conflicts. There is, that's why this is called a test in the first verse. There's a conflict. It's a test of love. For the primary and essential consideration in any man's, are you listening? In any man's relationship with God is this. Who comes first? Did Isaac or did God have the preeminent place in Abraham's affection? Well, the narrative implies that there was this tremendous struggle between in, in Abraham's decision because of the beautiful relationship that existed between Abraham and Isaac. Because it just keeps on telling us, just keeps on reminding us of the relationship that Abraham and Isaac had. Just look at the times it refers to my son. This only son whom you love, take your son Isaac. He took his son, he put, his, put the wood on his son. The son said, my father, here I am my son. And so at every turn we are confronted again and again that the relationship that Abraham and Isaac had was a beautiful relationship of love that we might feel the terrible burden and test that's laid upon this old man. For I want you to know that the friend of God must be willing to sacrifice the dearest thing on earth if God asks it. As cruel as it may seem, the demand that, that was laid upon Abraham in the Old Testament is no greater a demand than Christianity lays on us. For every one of us who are Christians, who are followers of the way, in the way, must be willing to enthrone God and sacrifice the dearest thing in our life for Him if He asks it. Jesus said, He that is not willing to forsake father and mother for my sake is not worthy of me. So that don't you ever think that the demand that was made upon Abraham in the Old Testament was by a God who was much more stern in the Old Testament than the New Testament reveals. I tell you, He made no greater demand on Abraham than Jesus Christ makes on us. And the more precious the treasure is, the more we are bound to lay it on the altar for God. For you see, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Isaac that God wanted, it was Abraham. God didn't want the death of Isaac, this young man. God wanted the death in Abraham that caused him to give Isaac preeminence over God in his affection. And God wants that death in each of us. If there's anything that, gives, that has preeminence over God in your affection, He wants that. He wants a knife in it. He wants it on the altar. It's a test of love. It's a test of faith. Abraham's faith came into conflict. His faith in the promises of God. For God had said years before, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now, how's he going to do that if Isaac, his only son, is dead? I mean, God seems to be against God. Faith seems to war against faith. Promise seems to be in conflict with command. 
For if he sacrifices Isaac, what happens to this hope that has shown on his life all of these years? He doesn't understand it. But he keeps on walking to the, down the path that God has laid out for him to travel, believing that this is not a dead-end road of which there is no exit. That's the climax of faith. Watch this. The climax of faith is to believe God so absolutely that even when His ways seem to be contradictory, it is easier to believe that God will do a seemingly impossible miracle than it is to doubt Him. So that if God says for us to do this, and it seems impossible, if it leads us to an to a impassable mountain, believe that when you get there, the mountain's going to part. And if the way He leads you seems to lead to an inaccessible cliff, believe that when you get there, there'll be a path. And so the author of the book of Hebrews shed some light on it in the 12th chapter when he says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's a profound, marvelous thing. For Abraham had never heard of that before. He'd never seen that done before. As far as we know, there had never been anybody raised from the dead. And so Abraham believed that God would do an unheard of miracle in order to keep faith with his children and fulfill his promise. He believed that, even though he didn't understand it. Bind your Isaac to the altar then. Bind him there with many a card. Oh, my brother, do not falter. Can't you fully trust the Lord? He it is who watches o'er you. Though your path oft seems so dim, He will bring new life to Isaac if you leave the miracle to him. Third truth that emerges. It is that obedience is complete when the inward surrender is complete. The outward action is is not really necessary. I heard about this teacher who was scolding her two, some children in her, in her class, and there were two that were especially rowdy. And finally she said, Now you boys, sit down and get quiet, or I'm going to send you to the principal. Oh, boys, sat down. One said to the other, In my body, I'm sitting down. In my mind, I'm still standing up. I know some people who are doing God's will in their bodies, and they hate every minute of it. They're doing what God, they believe God wants them to do, but they do it through clenched teeth and clenched fists. In their bodies, they're standing up. In their bodies, they're sitting down. In their minds, they're still standing up. When the inward surrender is complete, the outward action doesn't really matter. I want you to watch this and believe it that when Abraham surrendered to the will of God without question or reservation, he could have done no more had he taken the knife and plunged it into his son's heart. It is the inward surrender that God desires. It's what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about that, that which proceeds out of the heart. For the Sermon on the Mount teaches this, if anything, That the will is the man, and when that will is surrendered, the man is surrendered. 
The outward action is just the coarse expression of it. Principle number four. Faith will always be rewarded after it's tested. Now if you still have your Bible open to the text, I want you to turn, look, drop your eyes down. Well, maybe not drop your eyes, but look down at verse 16. And God came to Abraham the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. I'm going to bless your faith. Now there was another man in the Bible I seem to remember had a test. His name was Job. Now listen to what God said to Job when he passed the test. He said, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him, all the problems that had come. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, twice as many as he had before and 6,000 camels, twice as many as he had before, and a 1,000 yoke of oxen, twice as many as he had before, and a 1,000 female donkeys, twice as many as he had before, and he had seven sons and three daughters, the same, he restored the same amount of children to him, and the scripture says that everything was blessed in Job's life in abundance because he passed the test of faith. It always happened. The blessing comes in this, that we, we get back, we get back the blessing or the gift that's more precious having been laid on the altar. That's the reward. And you imagine the strange and solemn joy and love that must have passed between Isaac and Abraham after that hand was stayed and the sacrifice was not made. Can you just imagine the kind of feeling that went between those two people? And Abraham had Isaac like he'd never had him before. He was a tooth, he was a double child of wonder. He was born by a miracle, now he was restored by a miracle. Let me tell you, and I want you to hear this. We never know the sweetness of our blessings until we offer them to God, until we place them on an altar. We never know the sweetness of our privileges until we offer them to God as a sacrifice. And God gives us back our gifts much more beautiful than before. Can you imagine how marvelous it was as Abraham and Isaac went back to Beersheba, arm and arm, for Abraham had Isaac like he'd never had him before. 
That's what Jesus promised when He said, there's not a person who sacrifices, who gives up anything for me or the Gospels in this world that shall not be rewarded a hundred times both in this world and in the world to come. He had him like he'd never had him before. I want you to know this. You never have your children any more than when you give your children to God. You never have your life any more than when you give that life to God. That vocation, that consuming desire and drive that keeps you going, it is never as rewarding and as fulfilling and as exciting as the day you give that to God. You'll have it like you've never had it before. And the reward that came to Abraham was that he became an adumbration, a foreshadowing of of God's unspeakable gift of his son. As a matter of fact, Paul uses, quotes the very words of our text in Romans when he said that God who spared not his own son but gave him up freely for us all. Abraham was a foreshadowing of that. That's the greatest reward. Now watch. When you look at Abraham making that sacrifice of his son on the altar at Mount Moriah, who do you see? You see God the Father making the same sacrifice. What a reward. What a blessing. What a a joy when you pass the faith test and the love test and the obedience test. Men look at you and they see the Father. And so Charles Howard was raised by a Negro mammy. He said he got away and went off to college and grew up and didn't come home for a long time. He got back to his hometown. He's a grown middle-aged man. And he said he went to see that Negro mammy. She had cataracts on her eyes. She could hardly see. He went to her house and she was old and bent and gnarled. And he told her who he was. And she said, I don't believe it. I just can't believe it. Come out here. And he got out on the front porch where the sun was shining. And he said, that old black woman took my face in her gnarled hands, looked like the gnarled roots of an old tree, and kind of held my face toward the sunlight, and then said, yes, you is, Charlie's son. I see the semblance. When a man is willing to give God that which is the cherished of his possessions, what men see in that is the semblance of the Father's love. And that's the greatest reward. There's one last thought that kind of oozes out the pores of this text like choice wine from fine grapes. And it's this. God always provides for the obedient. Now the King James has it that that when God stayed the hand, the angel stayed the hand of the sacrifice was not required outwardly. That Abraham stood back and said, I'm going to name this place Jehovah-Jireh. It's not even named that in the New American Standard. He gives us the translation of it. The Lord will provide. I'm going to name this place the Lord will provide. Now what did he mean? What did he mean by that? I mean, specifically what did he 
think God would provide. Well, on the shallow end of that, we, we know that God will provide the necessities of our life, the things that are necessary for, for, to, to, to have a sustained life. God will not let the righteous be forsaken or his seed beg bread. It's comforting to know that he who feeds the sparrows will feed us, that he who clothes the lilies, as this song mentioned a while ago, will clothe us. And that's a great and comforting thought. And it comes to God's people. Seek first the kingdom, and all the things that are necessary to live will be yours. But there's a deeper meaning from this text. He means that God will provide the very thing He requires if we serve Him. Now watch this. When God told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, I want, you to make, I want to make this demand on you. Abraham's heart must have been lacerated. And he thought, how am I going to do that? He could have thought, I can't do that, that one thing. And yet he believed that what God required, God would supply. Whatever God demands, God will give. And the greatest, excite, most exciting thing about all of this is that if God asks anything of you in service, that is the same time His promise that He'll provide all that's necessary to complete that service. And I've used an illustration before, just right out of this. In fact, the first time, first week I ever preached here in revival, there was a lady, I don't remember who it was, sitting right over there, and I used this illustration. I said, do you believe what I'm saying is true? She said, well, I guess. I mean, I was right in the middle of the sermon. I stopped like I'm, like I'm looking at Wendy. I said, you believe me if I told you that you could do something, etc., etc." She said, yes, yes, sir, you know. I said, well, if I told you to do something, do you believe that, that, that what I ask you to do, then, then you could do it? And she said, well, yes, kind of reluctantly. I said, well, come up here. And she started up here, and I said, I'd like for you to give me a $10 bill. She said, I won't have $10. I said, well, there's inconsistency there because you just got through saying that if I told you to do something, then at the same time that was the promise that you could do it. She said, well, just a minute, I'm going to go to my person. She said, I said, no, I mean right now you could do what I ask you to do. And she said, well, I said, now come on, give me a $10 bill. You must not believe me or you give me a $10 bill. And we went and played that game a little bit. And I reached over and I took her hand I put a $10 bill in it. I said, now give me the $10 bill. And she did and everybody laughed. The point of that illustration is this, that whatever God asks you to do, at the same time He's going to put it in your life to accomplish it or He wouldn't ask it to begin with. And so as Jerry Paulson reminded me one day about something he'd heard, he said he heard that when uh, Abraham and Isaac started up one side of the mountain, that old ram was starting up the other side. And he got caught in the thicket, and just as he turned around, there he was, not by accident. God had provided what God had required. And there's an even deeper meaning to this text. I want you to look back at verse 8. If you'll do that with me, I want to show you something exciting. And if you'll get this, then we'll go to house. Verse 8 said, And God said, and Abraham said, God will provide, underline, God will provide 
for himself the lamb of the burnt offering. Don't miss that phrase, for himself. And God, making provision, makes the spotless sacrifice for sin. Now, if there is ever going to be a sacrifice for sin, God's going to have to provide it. And he said, Abraham said, thousands of years before it happened, God will provide for himself. For you see, before the divine mercy can flow out from God for sin and grace in forgiveness of sin, that sacrifice must avail to satisfy the demands of His righteousness and justice. Not only did, was the sacrifice provided by God, it was provided for God, for Himself. So that the only sacrifice that will satisfy God's demand for righteousness and holiness because of sin is the sacrifice He makes for Himself. And that sacrifice is the sinless offering of His own Son at Calvary. Now, if God will give up His Son for you in your sin, would you not be willing this morning to give up the dearest thing in your life to Him in His sinlessness? Pray with me. Father, we thank you not just for the lessons you have taught us, not just for the example that we have, but we thank you for the challenge that comes to each of us now, saying, take your son, your only son that you love. Take that business, that marriage, that vocation, that pursuit, take it to Mount Moriah and offer it to me. God, help us to get up early in obedience to say, Lord, whatever you command, I will do. Whatever you ask, I will give. Wherever you send, I will go. And God, if there's a need this morning for that kind of commitment, that kind of test is taking place, a test of love and faith and obedience, God, I pray that we shall pass the test. In Jesus' name, I pray. Now we have three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The sacrifice has been made at Calvary. And God in His marvelous, infinite love has provided the sin offering Himself, for Himself, even Christ. But you must come and receive that gift. You must in faith trust Jesus and Him alone for your salvation. Or you'll never be saved. It's not join the church or do good, all that. There's no sacrifice that will satisfy Him except what He Himself has offered. 
Would you come and accept Christ as your Savior and trust Him today? The second invitation is for us to come to say, Lord, here is this thing that stands between us and I've held to it. I'm clinging to it in my life and I want to lay it on an altar so that God can be preeminent in my affection. Or you may need to join the church this morning. Not everybody would God lead here, but if God's leading you, that's what we want. We want you to come and place your life with us. You may not even understand how to do it. Lee will share with you as he receives you here this morning. Others, we want you to respond publicly and personally and immediately to the invitation of the Lord while we stand and sing you come.